Welcome to the Forager Podcast, where I talk with cottage food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable, and today I'm talking with Jen Holmer Elazi and Danny Elazi. Jen and Danny live in Austin, Texas, and sell sourdough crackers with their food business, The Sourdough Project. They have a very unique product, and that uniqueness combined with the quality of their crackers has propelled their business forward in a big way. They started from home under Texas's cottage food law in 2018 and almost immediately started getting requests from wholesalers who wanted to carry their products. Within months, they were producing from a commercial kitchen, and now they are building out their own production facility. Today, they have over 50 wholesale accounts, and they still have trouble keeping up with all the demand. But in addition to having an amazing product, they also do a great job at marketing their business. Their branding and packaging really stands out on the store shelves, and they're also always so excited to talk to people at their local farmer's markets about why their crackers are so special. They say that their business started quite by accident, but as you'll see, this couple had all the ingredients they needed to build a successful food business. And with that, let's jump right into this episode. Welcome to the show, Jen and Danny. Nice to have you here. Hi, thanks for having us. Thanks. So can you guys uh, tell me a little bit about how you got this uh, business off the ground? How did it all get started? Well, I uh, started making sourdough at home. I had an allergic reaction to wheat and I didn't eat any wheat for about five years. That is kind of a pretty sad existence. I heard research about sourdough and I thought I'd give it a shot. So I started making sourdough bread at home, uh, cookies, brownies, all sorts of things. I made crackers and people tasted them and they absolutely loved them. So kind of seemed like there was nobody selling sourdough crackers at the farmer's market or in our local local groceries. So we thought we would start a little side business. Yeah, I saw that you said that you never expected this passion project to turn into a real business, right? So this all kind of happened by accident? Completely by accident. I assumed that I would be able to keep my regular job, just bake on the weekends, sell at the farmer's market. And I quickly found out that that was not going to work. The demand was kind of unbelievable. It just kind of snowballed and kind of got out ahead of us because we were hoping and trying to just have it as a side gig and do it at the weekend at the farmer's market. And then we had our first commercial um, wholesale account. They were contacting us and reaching out to us and really just wanted our product just as it is. And we didn't really have to make any changes. So it was easy to get in with them. And then once that happened, it kind of just snowballed. Uh, It was uh, Farmhouse Delivery, which is um, kind of a small CSA here in Austin. So that was kind of the catalyst. Now, I saw that Jen has like culinary experience in the past. So I don't know where you were working, Jen, at the time, but, you know, do you think that came into play and kind of wanting to start this as a business? Yes. So I worked for a local grocery store chain here in Texas called Central Market. They are a gourmet kind of high-end grocery store. So just all the gourmet food from around the world. I worked 
as a foodie. So my main job was just to talk to people about food all day. I would do cooking demonstrations. We had a cooking school that was associated with the grocery store as well. So I worked there for the nine years before and during the beginning of the sourdough project. But we had also been doing a lot of stuff at the house for a while. I mean, Jen had a small cookie business for a while before that. And we had been doing all sorts of like small adventures here at the house on our own for a while. We were doing our own kombucha and just experimenting with a lot of different things. And, you know, just by chance when we were on sourdough, it just kind of took off. We also received a lot of encouragement from the community, from Central Market and, you know, friends and people just saying, you got to do this. We had other friends who were vendors at the farmer's market um, doing a variety of things. And we felt like it was just a great opportunity to try an idea out. There was like nothing to lose. And we figured if all of these other people around us were doing it, we should give it a shot. So it was actually these vendors, like other people had to kind of convince you to start selling your products. Yeah, honestly, like I have always made food and given it to people. And I didn't think that it was something that I would be able to sell or anything like that. I didn't have that idea in my head, but I was just pushed by you know, friends and, and family to give it a shot and starting at the farmer's market and starting as a cottage food business, there's very little initial cost to just try. Yeah. It's interesting to hear that you worked at the grocery store as a foodie and, you know, you're, you know, talking to people about food all day. I feel like that would very easily translate into just jumping into the farmer's market. Cause that's what you're doing all day, right? Talking about your food products. Yeah, it was definitely something we thought about it for about six months before we took the plunge and actually did it. Well, we didn't even take a full plunge. We did it as a side gig for quite a while. I can't really remember exactly, but it was less than a month. Was it really? Was it that (laughs) fast? It was less than a month. (laughs) Yeah, we tried and then it just took over our whole life. And you said you had a cookie business before this, so you'd actually tried to sell other things before that didn't work out as well? Yes. So before the Texas cottage food laws passed, I had had a small cookie business, like wholesale cookie business in Austin. But at that time, you could not bake things in your home and sell them. Like it was illegal. You had to go to a commercial kitchen and the cost of being in a commercial kitchen was too much for the amount of cookies that I was selling. So I kind of did it for a few months and then it just wasn't worth it. Plus cookies is a tough cookie because everybody's doing cookies. The big part of how this just all happened was that nobody really wanted to mess around with crackers. And even to this day, there are bakeries that do all sorts of sourdough and stuff like that that just like buy our crackers and sell them at their store and just think that we're just crazy that that we're doing this because it is like really specialized but we I mean we didn't really find it that difficult even though I mean it is especially when we were having to do everything by hand it is still very much a handmade product but we have the luxury of a dough sheeter which we did not have for the longest time. So Jen definitely built up some serious triceps over that period. 
Yeah, it's a pretty unique product, right? I mean, like sourdough crackers. I don't know if I've seen that before from a from a cottage food business. And so you think that that's why it took off so quickly. It's just because people just instantly recognized that it was a unique product and they wanted it in their stores. Yeah, I think the uniqueness of the product, the way that the product looks, our crackers have kind of a very unique shape to them. We use all local wheat from our local stone mill. They're heirloom varieties of wheat, two of the oldest varieties of wheat found in North America. So the ingredients that we use are the very, very best ingredients that we can get. And we just make them with love. I mean, they're very simple ingredients and they make a very tasty cracker. Looking back at things, I don't know if this really would have happened had it been something other than crackers, because I've seen a lot of other, you know, people kind of come and go from the farmer's market trying to do cottage businesses, whether it's, you know, sourdough breads and other things. And there's just so much out there already that they struggle to kind of stand out and differentiate. But we were kind of lucky in that aspect. Well, it is interesting. I mean, your business name, right? It's the Sourdough Project. And that's a very broad name. And so it's interesting that you have that name and yet you're specialized in just selling crackers. We are specialized because our hands are tied. We have so many plans and so many ideas for things that we want to do. And even though we, our main flagship product is the crackers, we do have cookies and cookie dough and brownies and other stuff that we do, but just not sourdough starters, all, all of them sourdough, but just not bread because We just don't have the capacity for that or the equipment and the market's just already flooded with it. So we still have all these ideas and big plans, but we are stuck where we are until our new production facility is open. Our fridges are completely packed with dough for the crackers and our equipment for the crackers take up all the floor space that we have. So we don't really have the ability or capacity to do much more right now. You know, I did see that you, you know, you use like this organic olive oil, organic wheat, um, heirloom wheat, local wheat. So do you think that's what makes your crackers so special? Yeah, I think the wheat has a big flavor role in the cracker. One of the wheats that we use is Sonora, which is a white winter, like soft wheat. And one of the aspects of Sonora is it has a nutty kind of buttery taste to it. So our crackers taste kind of cheesy, buttery because of the Sonora, but also because of the fermentation. So it gives it a very kind of cheese it vibe, but it's all organic and just a few simple ingredients. And it fits the clientele. Like if we're going to go through the trouble of fermenting this stuff for days and sheeting it by hand and taking the care, you might as well have the best of ingredients because you're doing the best of the process. It would just kind of be silly to go through all that trouble and not have the best ingredients that you can find be the base of the product because it just wouldn't really be worth it. And the customer wouldn't really be interested in either, I don't think. You know, Austin is a very savvy market as far as food products go. There's lots of CPGs that start in Austin. Austin really knows its food. I mean, it's the home of Whole Foods. You know, we have huge, huge farmer's markets all over town. 
every weekend. People know food and they have really high expectations. So you want to make a product that you can really stand behind because if not, people will call you on it. And it wasn't even entirely, honestly, our idea to do this. I mean, it was kind of the environment that shaped us. And in order to even qualify as a vendor at the market, you have to be using local ingredients. So it just all kind of fell in place like that. Yeah, I mean, and you do a really good job of like educating customers about how unique your products are. You know, you have a very special fermentation process you go through and it results in this cheesy flavor, but it doesn't actually contain cheese. Can you expand a little bit more about what makes your fermentation process special? Our fermentation process, we decided in the beginning to slow it down so that we could ferment it for as long as we possibly could before the dough starts to break down. The benefit of doing that is you get more of the nutritional benefits of fermentation. The sourdough culture breaks down the gluten structure in the wheat, and it kind of basically pre-digests it for your body. So it's really easy to digest. Plus all of the nutrients in the wheat are available for your body to absorb. So it was really out of the nutritional digestibility aspect that we started doing that. And then we found that it makes it taste really good the longer you ferment it. So we make our dough, stick it in the fridge. We let it ferment for about 24 to 48 hours, depending on the type of dough, sometimes a little bit longer. And it makes a huge difference in the taste of the product. Technically, it is possible to make the sourdough crackers without the cold fermentation process, but it is exceedingly difficult and tricky without the kind of temperature control that you get from having it in the fridge. If you were to have it out on the counter or just in the general environment in the kitchen, if the temperature is different, if the humidity is different, you could easily over ferment or under ferment and find yourself with a chewy or bubbly dough. Especially in Austin, it's very hard. Like our temperatures are really high, really fast. Um, it's hard to do a non-temperature controlled fermentation here because it can go from zero to way over fermented in just like a few hours. So you have this, you know, very unique product, uniquely made, <laughs> unique result, but then you also have flavors of the crackers, right? What are some of the flavors you've come up with? Yeah, so we started with the sea salt. Our next flavor was zatar, which is a Middle Eastern spice blend. My husband, Danny, is Lebanese, and it's one of the spice blends that they use almost every day. We literally put it in everything, so it had to go in the crackers. Yeah, (laughs) that definitely was our second cracker. Um, Then we just kind of went from there to see what people like. So everything like an everything bagel. Uh, sun-dried tomato and herb, which to me tastes like pizza. It's delicious. It's one of my favorites. Um, Beaten thyme. There's so many more that are not actually regulars. So at the farmer's market, we uh, pretty much every week, if not every couple of weeks, depending on how pressed we are, we try to bring in just a limited supply of whatever herbs we could get our hands on. 
We did dill recently. We did a rosemary and herbs. Whatever's in season, we try to do seasonal varieties of crackers. Also fun crackers. Like we do a Verde and Black cracker. In honor of Austin FC, our local soccer soccer team. I actually wanted to ask you, you know, I noticed that, you know, you have a variety of different flavors, but they're all kind of like self-descriptive names, you know, like beet and thyme or sea salt. Did you ever experiment with using like more creative made up names um, and trying to brand each flavor in that way? So our sun-dried tomato cracker used to be called pizza and nobody bought it. Yeah. And then we renamed the cracker sun-dried tomato and herb and people immediately yeah. loved it. They thought that we changed the recipe, which we didn't. Yeah. It went from being the least popular to one of the more popular ones without actually doing anything other than just stop naming it pizza cracker, which we thought was really awesome and funny and cool. And then realized that that was not working. Wow, that's really fascinating. So you just decided to abandon the creative names after that? Yeah. The only other thing that we kind of have a creative name for is our dill cracker, which is one of our seasonal varieties. And we call that one dilly. And I mean, that's still pretty self-explanatory, but I don't know. From my experience, people just didn't go for that. It seemed to create confusion. Yeah. And people were like, what do you mean pizza? And doesn't taste like pizza. And we're like, dude, it's just that we're just playing around here. It's not actually (laughs) pizza cracker. It's just, so we just decided to stick with sun-dried tomato. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Other than that one, have you had any flavors that like kind of failed? Broccoli. We didn't do that. What was it? Well, we were trying to get the green right and it was just way too strong. What what, what was the powder we had used? That was broccoli. Yeah. Yeah. Broccoli does not make a good cracker. It just smelled like asparagus. Yeah. That did not work. Um, As far as anything that we've brought to the market, I think that all of our seasonal flavors, people have loved. Actually, every time we bring a seasonal flavor to the market, people like for weeks and months after ask for that particular flavor. But I kind of refuse at this point to bring any more full-time flavors on having six full-time flavors already. Yeah. It's already difficult enough to keep them all in inventory. I did notice that, you know, you have some pretty unique flavors, but you also like are very good about educating customers about what they pair with, like what cheeses they pair with. Is that something that customers really appreciate knowing or like, is that just based on your own experience? Yeah. So we chose our pairings based on what we like to eat the crackers with, but then we also paired up with a local cheese shop Mm -hmm. and did a series of Zoom classes pairing each of our cracker varieties with a different kind of cheese. So we've worked with cheese professionals and based on our own personal preferences on how we like to enjoy the crackers. So do you have cheeses on hand at the market, you know, to to let people taste the crackers? Right now, it's even difficult to do tastings in general because of COVID and masking and stuff like that and all the restrictions. I don't know if we actually did cheese. We usually just go to our partner vendors and whoever's at the market and just team up with them, either give them our crackers or just take some of their products. So it's basically what we can find at the market is what we try to pair with. And, and we with. actually don't 
sample them with crackers at our booth. We give sample crackers to the other vendors to use at their booth to sample. It just really makes customers even aware of us. There's so many people at the farmer's market. There's so many booths. There's like hundreds of different booths at the farmer's markets here. It's really big and crowded and kind of confusing and easy to get lost. People can't find you. So having our products being used to sample with at other people just kind of makes them aware that we're even there. And They can see our products at lots of different tents throughout the market, and then we'll seek us out to find us. So you started this business basically by starting at the farmer's market. You offered your crackers at the farmer's market. When was that? Uh, so that was in April of 2018. We started at the farmer's market. And so take me forward from there. How did your business progress and how quickly did it scale up? After basically the first week, we started getting emails from people who wanted to wholesale the crackers. We held them off. It's always been our idea to grow at our own pace. We didn't want to pressure ourselves to do more than we thought we could. We wanted to stay cottage as long as we possibly could because it's definitely a less expensive way to grow. You can control a lot of things. By August or September of 2018, we had moved into our first commercial kitchen and started doing wholesale for a few small, small places around Austin. The way it's grown has been really dictated by what we've been constricted by uh, production wise. So we were baking from the house uh, under the cottage food law. A few accounts wanted the crackers wholesale. So we kind of had one foot at the house, one foot at the commercial kitchen we were leasing on an hourly basis. We quickly learned that that was not really sustainable. Um, We kept kind of part-timing at the commercial kitchen and then working from the house for the farmer's market stuff. And we had to like keep our products separate because like you can't sell the cottage made products wholesale. And we were kind of stuck like that for the longest time, having to lease hourly and telling people that we're larger accounts. No, that we can't do wholesale for you. Unfortunately, until we found the small commercial kitchen that we were working at currently From there, we added a bunch of wholesales account just so we could afford the rent and equipment and then quickly realized that we had reached capacity because there was only so much room for refrigeration and all the other good stuff. And then we kind of found ourselves in that spot again the last year or so where we're constantly telling people, no, we can't, sorry, just because we're already baking five days a week and just don't have the inventory or the ability to produce that much. And we won't be able to take on any of these larger distributors or accounts until we have our new uh, facility ready. So fingers crossed that'll be ready in the next, I don't know, I'm kind of tired of giving out numbers, but maybe three to six months. Yeah, we'll get to the production facility in a little bit. I know that you're working on that, but this is a pretty unique situation, right? Like, it sounds like you didn't have to do much of anything to get wholesale accounts. Like, did you say within the first week they started coming to you? Yes, we were incredibly lucky. I think that just making something that nobody else was really making kind of put us in the spotlight for a lot of people to approach us wanting to sell our product. 
I never had an ambition of selling outside of the farmer's market. So I kind of put people off for quite a bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. We still had to go and get some accounts the old fashioned way, send them some emails, knock on the door, bring them some samples. But those are really small accounts where we were like, they're just not even aware of us, but we would really like to be in this like boutique grocery. So let's hit them up and sure enough, they're interested, but all of our big accounts, all the big accounts came to us. Whole Foods has a great uh, local program where they go to farmer's markets and seek out new products. Uh, Central Market does the same thing. They go and seek out local products to bring into their stores. The farmer market has been key. I, I can't stress enough how important it is that just being there, our presence there, that's a big part of people finding us, knowing about us, you know, hitting us up for wholesale the farmer's market is just awesome. How many wholesale accounts do you have right now? Um, big and small altogether, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or something like that. So, I mean, it's close to I mean, I'm including 75 every... doors, I'm... but we haven't been able to take on any more accounts. So we're kind of sitting idle right now. And there's now, some accounts that we just that. can't take on because they need... Distribution has been the hiccup lately, and we just can't get in with some of the larger distributors in our current kitchen because they want stuff on pallets. Well, I don't even I don't even have a pallet jack. I don't even have a door that's wide enough to get a pallet through. And we're just like, okay, let's just hold off until we're in the new space and we know we can actually produce these like several pallets worth of orders that are like just the amount just boggles the mind when we first got in with Central Market and realized just how big of an undertaking it was and just like oh like this is what several thousand crackers look like I have no you know we didn't even have the slightest idea of what we were getting into yeah Uh, there's nine central market stores and then we're only in Austin area Whole Foods until we can have a bigger production space so yeah some of those bigger accounts it's a lot and currently we have just two employees so we're we're doing everything ourselves. Yeah, I mean I it sounds like a ton and you have all these wholesale accounts. I'm curious like why I, I think you're still doing two farmers markets. Like why are you still at the farmers markets right now? Yeah. Well, honestly for me, it's one of the only times that I'm able to socialize during the week, spending pretty much every day in the kitchen, don't get out much. It's kind of our socializing day of the week now. It's socializing. It's also connecting with customers. Our particular farmer's markets bring in thousands of people every market. New people, people who may not have ever seen you before, lots of tourists. I like to be able to share my product, talk to people about it. And it's still like a really good source of revenue for us. I mean, we go to the market, we sell the crackers, but we also sell sourdough chocolate chip cookies, sourdough starters, uh, sourdough brownies. We introduce all of our seasonal flavors there. So it's a place where we can experiment. And it's also a place that we get to connect with our local food community. It's really fun. And our decision to be at the farmer's market is not really tied to what else is going on production-wise or how many accounts we have. I wouldn't want to stop going to the farmer's market. 
I mean, even if it wasn't making any money or didn't have an impact on the bottom line, it's just an awesome experience. We get to see a lot. We get to hear a lot. We get to talk to a lot of interesting people. This is worth it on its own. I mean, it sounds like there is a huge market, right? You said there were hundreds of different booths and it sounds like there's quite a farmer's market culture in your area. So how much do you actually sell at a given market? I don't know. I mean, we'll sell anywhere from 50 boxes of crackers to 120 boxes of crackers. But then we're also selling a dozen or two sourdough starters. It's good. I mean, we do sell quite a bit of product at each market. And a lot of local Austin people who would buy our product at the store when they come to the farmer's market, they get a dollar discount if they buy two boxes of crackers. And then they also, we have like a loyalty punch card where they can earn a free box after 10 boxes. We definitely make sure that it's a better deal buying at the farmer's market. And honestly, we don't make enough brownies and cookies and stuff like that to really try to go and do anything wholesale with them. Like it just wouldn't be enough, but you know, with the farmer's market, you could just show up with whatever you want, whatever you made that week. It's easy, I guess. Would you say that your wholesale accounts are um, like the biggest chunk of the product that you make is for your wholesale accounts? Yes, definitely. We actually are at a point where we don't have any inventory ever because we're constantly making to order because we can't catch up. So we still deliver all of our orders on time. We just tell them are barely making it every you're like okay like yeah just we'll have that in like 10 days or something that's what i usually tell people just not to get their hopes up and if they get it early then they're happy i know you're building this production facility why did you decide to move into your own bigger production facility to produce more instead of you know considering the extreme demand for your product looking into a co-packer i don't know i I like making my product. It is like a little bit difficult, but I feel like making simple products like sauces, salsas, things like that work well with co-packers. I'm not sure how fermented products would work with a co-packer, but I also, I don't necessarily want to give up that control over the quality. I wouldn't even know where to start. It it seemed like a good idea to build a bigger production facility, continue making the product ourselves. If we are able to have space for other bakers to come in and use our facility when they're starting out, we wanted to have that option available. You know, maybe someday we wanted to open up a storefront or something like that. It made more sense. The idea of paying hourly at a commercial kitchen is terrible. It really hurts. Like it it hurts a lot. We saved up for two years before we started building this kitchen out. We looked at locations. We just saved and saved and saved. We've tried to grow as we can afford to. So that's, that's one of our main. Plus things. we actually enjoy we enjoy the making of it. Like that's, that's the whole reason we're doing this is because we were doing it. We were already making this stuff before we were even selling this stuff. It's been fun. And if we can do it, we should do it. 
You know, it's one thing to be making products at home for yourself, for friends, giving them away. It's a whole nother thing to be producing for a whole bunch of wholesale accounts. Like you still feel like it's fun or do you feel like some of the fun has been sapped out of it becoming a a factory? I actually, I mean, certainly don't like the drive up there and all the traffic. That's not fun. (laughs) Well, the commute to our current kitchen is not fun, but I like the challenge of it. It's exciting to me that we fill up the kitchen with all of these crackers and they're just gone. It's exciting. It's, we kind of make a game out of it in the kitchen to try to break our personal bests as far as like production. Plus we have a lot more that we want to do that we just haven't had a chance to do. We're not really ready to move on to any kind of like stage like that because we still want to tackle pretzels. We still want to tackle graham crackers. We've been thinking about graham crackers for a while now, but we are afraid to jump into it because we anticipate a lot of demand from it. There's still a lot of ideas that we want to explore and we kind of need our own space to do that. We don't really have the time to continue doing anything like that from the house. So we kind of have all our eggs in this new kitchen basket right now. It would be one thing if we like really hated to like actually make the product, but I still have fun doing it. It's still enjoyable. I still get a lot of satisfaction out of creating a product and literally having a hand in every single box of crackers that we make. It's good. But yeah, don't get us wrong. I mean, there have been difficulties and times where we're like, this is terrible. This could be the end. You know, having like the dough sheeter break, having a mixer break when we just have one piece of equipment that we rely on is just like terrifying. There certainly are difficulties, but it's totally worth it. What did you do when like your mixer broke? Oh man, it turns out it wasn't broken. There's a fuse in the back that we didn't know about. (laughs) Yeah, that's what happened there. The dough sheeter broke. I literally went around all the different used equipment places trying to find the parts, couldn't find them, went online. They were all sold out in different places, ended up buying a part that was entirely from a different piece of equipment on the hopes that it would work. In the meantime, everybody's just sheeting crackers by hand with the roller, which is just a tremendous amount of work. How long did it take us? Two weeks with like everybody with like wholesale accounts, just like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? We're like, we're trying our best. Just bear with us. And honestly, I still feel really lucky that we found the parts that we needed and we had to fix it ourselves. I mean, we just... We called one of the repair places out and the guy was just basically like, buy a new one. We're like, that's just ridiculous. We're going to fix Even this. Even when we were still in our home, our oven stopped working yep. and we had to wait for a new igniter for it. We had so to we were out of the markets for like two weeks. And at that point, we still hadn't got the igniter and we literally bought another oven and put it right next to the kitchen. And we had two ovens in the kitchen for a while. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds challenging. Um, It also sounds like it's been a little challenging to build out this facility. I mean, you alluded to it, there being delays. What have been some of the challenges there? The city of Austin has a lot of codes and permits and things that make it very challenging. So even though we don't have any grease, we had to put in a huge in-floor grease trap. 
The permitting has been very difficult because the city offices are still closed. Everything is done online. The wait times are enormous. I mean, Um, we're even having to literally build out the gas lines for this place. Like it it was so hard to even find the place that, I mean, forget about just finding a place that's already equipped. That's, that was just like, we looked so hard and for so long to find something. Uh, We found a lot of restaurants, but those were in areas where there was high traffic and as a result, high rent. We had to build it out ourselves. We didn't really want to do that. We were forced to do that. We went in there in the hopes that it was going to be an easy, quick build. We are bootstrapping our way through this. And so a lot of the options that other people like hiring an engineer to design this stuff and an architect to do this and do that, we did without. And I even had to go so far as to become a general contractor and register with the city so I could do that stuff myself. And uh, since we're doing it ourselves, we learn the hard way. Which takes a lot longer. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the money that we ended up saving from not having to hire professionals, we just end up wasting on mistakes. Maybe, I don't know. We're probably still better off. But yeah, the biggest hiccup really was being forced to put in a enormous grease trap. We were really surprised and floored by the requirement that they made us have to abide by. We originally had planned on like a small system that is the same system that's currently we use at our current production facility and they just wouldn't go for it. And uh, they said that we needed like a four or 500 gallon system. And I just had to learn from scratch how to go about doing something like that. And it was a pretty big cost. Yeah, I've heard similar stories about, you know, having to abide by all these requirements and there being no wiggle room. I know you haven't finished it yet, but do you have a sense for like, even though you you become a general contractor, you've built a lot of the stuff out yourself, like what is it actually taking money-wise to get this place built? Um... In the neighborhood of the actual figure with equipment and stuff, like the the equipment that we're going to have to buy that's not related to construction, man, that's a very big number. I want to say that the construction alone is probably in the neighborhood of like 30 to 50,000. Once you include all the equipment, most of which we're probably going to have to take out a loan, we're pushing a hundred easy. That'll be the first loan that yeah, we've that would literally be the equipment loan out. is going to be the first one. Yeah, we've definitely like to this point grown as we could afford. Well, yeah, and it's pretty easy to justify, right? Especially if you have wholesalers that you're turning down because you can't, you can't right. fulfill their orders, and you know that this place is going to probably increase your production capacity by a ton. Yeah, so that's the light at the end of the tunnel. But we're just trying to. Be patient and work as much as we can. And we already have a bunch of new wholesale accounts lined up for when we finish production. So that's pretty exciting. It's also very frustrating. I mean, I just the like every day goes by and I'm like paying two rents at the same time. And it, it's so frustrating to just be paying rent on something that you can't use yet. But that was the compromise that we had yeah. to make because affording a commercial kitchen, like an hourly commercial kitchen, our rent each month would have been at least double what our rent 
would be in, in the kitchen that we're building. Yeah. So you have to kind of weigh out those things when you're making that decision. I mean, honestly, I always tell people to try to stay cottage as long as you possibly can totally, so that you can kind of save up to grow to the next phase Yeah, if we, you want to. Especially if like the alternative to like, if you have to move out and you have to like pay a commercial kitchen hourly, that is really, really risky and can get out of hand very quickly. And we did that for a short period of time and just like got away as fast as possible. And that's how we ended up in the production facility that we currently use. Um, And it was, it was a very difficult choice. We were like, we live in central Austin and there's already traffic everywhere. And the idea of having to go North to the outskirts and Cedar park, we didn't want to do that, but we, we had to, we had to rent a small tiny place and sit in traffic for hours every day, just because we couldn't keep renting a commercial space on an hourly basis. It was too difficult. So that's all on the expense side of things. What about on the income side of things? You know, you price these out. I mean, it seems like a very, very high quality and in-demand item. You know, it looks like customers are really impressed right off the bat when they try your product. So I assume you have some premium pricing. How, how have you landed on your pricing and how has it changed over time? So our crackers, like the price that we sell them for at the farmer's market is $8 a box. That's our suggested retail. Some of our wholesale accounts will sell them for $8 a box. Some sell them for $10.50 a box. We don't determine the price that they sell them at, but people still buy them. They appreciate that it's a quality product. Um, Our boxes are six ounces. Most crackers are four ounces. So price per ounce, it's still a pretty good deal. So we, I certainly tried to uh, figure out the pricing by calculating, you know, every little bit of what went in and the overhead and all of that. But the uh, way we really went about it actually, honestly, was just looked at what the closest competition to us was doing. And we were like, what can the market bear based on what we saw others charging? And that was really kind of where we started. Do you face any resistance to the pricing or are customers just happy to pay the price? Sometimes we do, but often it's because they just aren't really aware of the quality of the product that they're looking at. So once we explain that our wheat goes from the small family farm to the stone mill to us directly, that we are directly supporting these small family farms, that we use all organic ingredients, that everything's handmade, explain the several day process that it takes to make the product. People are less resistant once they are educated on what the product actually is. And a lot of people, even if they're resistant towards the price, they just really enjoy the taste so much that they. I really feel like those kind of worries go away once they know what the product is. Like when you realize that the flour we buy costs at least 10 times more than the off the shelf flour that you typically would get. Once you realize that organic extra virgin olive oil costs upwards of like $15 a liter, you know, that stuff all adds up. 
that's where all the money's going. It's not like we priced it at this because we were going to make a fortune or something. The question reminds me of Tom's, the local grocery store here, where we're like, man, we would be like a really good product for this place that's like full of local stuff. And uh, the buyer was just like, dude, there's no way somebody's going to buy these crackers for this much. And we're like, well, you know, give it a try, whatever. And sure enough, like they fly off the shelves. So even like they're floored by the fact that it works, I guess. I think the savvy customers are looking at the ingredients, looking at what they want to put in their bodies. They're buying food based on their values. I think people are willing to pay more for a quality product. I think that the kind of grocery store landscape is is changing quite a bit. People are reading ingredients more and care more about what they put in their body and where their food comes from. Well, the product itself looks very impressive and, and is obviously super high quality. Also, I would say your packaging looks extremely good and your labels, your logo, it, it looks very professional and impressive. Um, did you hire that out? Did you do it yourself? Actually, um, we have really great creative friends. It was really a collaborative effort from a little bit of input from us. And then our friends kind of took over and uh, they do not have jobs doing that and uh, designed really amazing stuff yeah, for that's, us. That's really the, you mentioning that it's professional is like the, the biggest, thank you so much, because it was definitely not professional and done in-house. Yeah, I mean, well, it's impressive. You know, also your your photography is impressive. Is that something that you had hired done? Some. Yes, we had a local food photographer uh, help us out. She does work for lots of national accounts, but uh, she has a total soft spot for local Austin companies. So she worked with us and we were able to, because I was afraid to get professional photography done. I was afraid that I wasn't going to be able to afford it. And yeah, it was, it was a really great experience. Well, I I can tell you the investment paid off because it's definitely like very impressive. Um, Your packaging, your photos, they really convey the quality of the product that's there. In terms of your packaging, you know, what do you use now? And is that what you've used um, from the beginning? That is what we've used from the beginning, more or less. I've been losing sleep over the packaging, quite frankly. The price on the packaging that we use has increased since we started using it from about somewhere in the range of like 40 bucks a case to like over a hundred recently. We are constantly facing supply issues. Uh, we were getting them from a local paper company and they couldn't get their hands on it anymore. So we had to go back to buying them online and paying shipping. And it seems like it just keeps getting harder to find and more expensive. We do want to move away from it, generally speaking, but just haven't been able, we just don't have the bandwidth right now. I'm, I'm just so bogged down at the build and Jen's bogged down in production. And um, we, we would like to move to something more eco-friendly and sustainable. Yeah. We're looking at different options right now, trying to be creative. I like the fact that our product kind of stands out on the grocery store shelf. It doesn't look like the rest of the boxes. So I wanted something that's still going to look really nice and distinctive, but I I do want something that's more eco-friendly. 
do you know like what the per package cost is for each one of these like a uh, plastic clamshell type boxes? So that's I think it's over fifty cents just for the plastic container itself per unit, and then you gotta add the add label, the label, add the, the casing. Product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that is quite expensive. And you're getting your labels professionally printed. Yeah, we we get our labels from Blue Label. They are out of Ohio and they do an excellent job. They have great customer service. We've tried a couple of other companies, been burned pretty bad. Yeah, it's by one of those companies where there's always a price when you first start, and that price is just like increasing every time you order. You're like, well, this isn't how you do business. It's like, could you imagine if I sold somebody crackers and every time they came back, I raised the price? Like, how do you think this is acceptable? But Blue Label's been awesome. But when you put your product on a store shelf, you have to have good packaging. You have to have good labels, right? Because that's the only thing speaking for your product. That is very true. That's something that you really have to kind of tell your story, have it be visually appealing right off the bat, because people are looking at a sea of boxes and colors and you want to stick out. You want people to be able to see the quality in your product, especially if you have a higher end product. If your product costs more than all the other ones on the shelf, people need to pretty immediately see why it costs more. What stands out to me when I look at your packaging is it it looks kind of colorful and simple as well. Yeah, we want the flavor name to be very prominent. On the back of the packaging, it tells our whole story about our wheat and the organic products and just kind of how everything is made and the quality. But on the front of the label, it's pretty simple what it is. You can see the product. And then on the side of the label, it's basically just the flavor name. I wanted it to be very easily recognizable. It didn't look like that off the bat. I mean, this has been a constant evolution. literally changes every time we decide to to add something or do something we're constantly changing it yeah but i mean you want it to be able to stick out on the shelf you want it to be able to tell a story to anybody who walks by especially when you move outside of selling it directly to someone also i noticed you know the shape of the cracker itself is very unique and um and don't know if I've seen that shape in a cracker before. And also it's all the same for, you know, that's the only shape that you use. What was the process like for deciding on the shape, finding it? It's a trade so, secret right there. So I wanted <laughs> nice little edges on the cracker. And when we were still making them at home, I ordered just about every pastry cutter I could possibly find I just kept ordering them and trying them and looking and seeing some of them were really had sharp pointy edges. And I didn't like that. I felt that it was like a little aggressive, sharp. I found this particular pastry cutter and we made it into a multi-cutter. It has the cutter that we use in the kitchen in the production facility has four of those pastry wheels on it and uh, cuts like a whole tray of crackers. Custom build. Yeah. uh, We bought the multi cutter tool and then bought a bunch of the uh, cutter wheels that we like and had it milled and put together. 
so that we could actually have, you know, make more than one cut at a time because it was okay to use a handheld cutter one at a time at the house, but uh, we really needed to scale that up. So we, we literally had to just make that ourselves. And you haven't experimented with selling any like fun shapes at markets? Basically, we cut the crackers and they bake on what we cut them on. So if we were to do other shapes, we would have to kind of remove the dough, dough or and- have a bunch of excess toss out, which is unacceptable. Yeah. To get those weird custom shapes, you'd have to use like a cookie cutter kind of setup, which is not the way to go. We use like a wheeled cutter. And that way there's, there's no waste. There's no waste. There's no having to go back and peel the dough out from around it. It would just be way too time consuming to go about like doing a custom cookie cutter shape. I, I don't see how that would be feasible. Yeah. I don't know how we would do that. I mean, you could, but it would take forever. <laughs> and then it already <laughs> takes forever. So you obviously, uh, in a husband and wife team, how do you uh, split the duties with this business between the two of you? So I do all of the recipe development, all of the production, and Danny takes care of all of the books and the construction and the majority of the emails. I do most public facing. I guess I'm like, I, I make sure the operation can actually happen and then she makes it happen. Honestly, it's hard to even delineate where it all starts and ends because there's a lot of overlap. I don't think we could either of us could do this on our own. No, definitely not. We are really lucky that we both kind of chose to do this together. We have very different minds. So I am terrified by numbers. He's much more of an analytical thinker. I just don't show how terrified I am of the numbers. (laughs) I did notice in a picture that Danny uses a wheelchair and I was just wondering, has that presented any challenges? And um, if so, how have you overcome them? I don't know that it's presented any particular challenges. I mean, Jen has to haul all the stuff to the market herself, unfortunately. (laughs) I I do the honor of driving us there. I'm sure she wishes I could help with that. But uh, it keeps me out of the kitchen for sure, because uh, there's not a lot of room in there. But he does like all sorts of deliveries yeah. for us all the time. I just do what I can. And often, or most of the time it's behind the desk, really. Yeah. But that, that stuff really needs to be done. It, it actually, it really works out perfectly. I would not ever be able to do this without him. And uh, that's pretty much a perfect partnership. Yeah. And with Jen, like knowing her stuff in the kitchen and knowing what to do, and I don't really have to, be there or have any input or get involved in it. Uh, But he orders all of the product. He makes sure that the kitchen is fully stocked. He pays everybody make sure that everything is taken care of. So I know you're working on this production facility. That's obviously to ramp up things quite a bit once you get that in operation. But what's your vision for this business? I mean, where are you taking this or where do you want to take it over the next few years? I'm not calling it done until we got graham crackers. That's all I got to say on that front. 
We have lots of other products that we want to experiment with and try. It's always been our goal to make it a project and do lots of things, everything that we possibly can out of sourdough. So I want to be able to explore that more. I want to do pretzels, You've got pretzels, pretzels on graham crackers, uh, pizza crusts, um, all sorts I of things. I can't wait until we're in the kitchen and are all settled in and have our operation nice and tidy. I would love to offer the resources that we will have to other up and coming people. And I've seen a lot of people come to the market. They're where we were when we first started. And I see them hit that wall of just like not being able to afford it. And I feel like if we could just provide people with just that one little first step that they need to have access to whatever it is, storage, ovens, you know, even just the knowledge and experience and just being able to share ideas, you know, we, we still have a lot to learn and I'm sure we could learn a lot from a lot of these people. There was these uh, couple that came to us to the farmer's market not that long ago. They were really hoping to, was it sourdough bread yeah. or something like that? Start a little yeah. And like they were doing the numbers and like their numbers were all astronomical. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, renting on an hourly basis and buying good stuff. And they were just like, I don't know who the hell is going to buy a loaf of bread for 15 bucks. And I'm like, just don't worry about that. That's what it costs you. That's what you need to charge and i wish it wasn't like that i wish there was an outlet for these guys but i mean in austin people are more willing to pay a little bit more for things like that it's just what it costs like 14 15 loaf of bread isn't unheard of nobody's making money off this just go to the parking lot and look at all the farmers booth people all that we all got beat up cars and are barely making it all the money that we've made so far has all gone into building the new kitchen, literally. But we have been able to support ourselves. We are yeah, able I mean, to we're take not, care of ourselves. Yeah. We don't have any other jobs. This is this is yeah, our full time job. So we're able to maintain our lifestyle. We're just not. It's not a get rich no. quick scheme. No, definitely not. So, uh, what keeps you going? Why are you driven to uh, continue the business or, or why do you love this business so much? It's the people. Like I wouldn't be doing it. I don't, I don't think it would be satisfying if I did not get customer feedback or if there wasn't a demand for it. The constant demand is just exciting and thrilling. It, every time we get orders, I, it's I've invested very too, gratifying. Like, not, not like literally money or anything, but we've just personally invested so much into it that we have a stake at this point, like a huge stake of just like, you know, this is what we've been working on for so long. I want to see where it's got to go. I think we can go a lot further. I I have no expectations, but I'm just going to keep going. And the more people who reach out to us and want to carry our product, that's completely exciting. Well, if people do want to reach out, um, you know, where can they find you or how can they contact you? Uh, through the website or email, uh, sourdoughproject.org. Of course, if you're anywhere around Austin, hit us up at the farmer's markets, email, Instagram, all that good stuff. Well, I mean, I could tell, you know, the demand's there. I know you're going places with this new production facility, and it's just cool to see how your business has taken off in a pretty short time frame. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing where it goes in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.
That wraps up another episode of the Forger podcast. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 56. And if you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. A review is the best way to support the show and will help others find it as well. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.